Theatrical Nights by Ben Henderson Our story takes place on a warm afternoon in the summer of 2016 in the converted stable building at the back of a large, detached Victorian house in Primrose Hill, London. It is the den of the writer Sir Thomas Seymour. There is a large French window which is open and overlooks the garden and a pond. The walls are covered with photographs and certificates and props and memorabilia from various theatrical productions, including handguns, knives and masks. There is a drinks cabinet with decanters and glasses. There is a large sofa with an armchair. There is also a chess table with a game in progress, with a stool on each side of the chess table. There is a desk with an old-fashioned typewriter, a telephone and a door entry system with an intercom. Also on the desk is a bust of George Bernard Shaw. To the side of the desk is a waste paper basket half full of screwed up pieces of paper, each with five or so words typed on them. The den is accessed by a path which runs alongside the house with a security gate that can be unlocked from the intercom system. Sir Tom is sitting at the chess table. He has a crepe bandage around his head. He is wearing a loose-fitting grey suit over a white T-shirt and a cravat. He has grey hair in a ponytail, a grey moustache, and he is holding a large glass of brandy. The phone is ringing, much to Sir Tom's annoyance, as he tries to outmanoeuvre his mythical chess opponent. Knight defends e5 pawn. Tom moves to the other side of the chess table. Good move. I don't care if you're the BBC, Sky, Al Jazeera or the Lord God in Heaven. No comment. Leave me alone. Oh, it's you, Tony. Well, leave me alone anyway. I discharged myself last night. I have two bloody newspapers ringing me already. How do they get the number? Well, obviously I'm here. I've got a headache that would fell a rhinoceros and a few bruises. And I've lost my mobile. I don't know. I'm all right. Can't you go and make a film somewhere where there's no signal? I don't know. It'll turn up. I've rung it three times. No answer. Oh, for Christ's sake, you don't have to come round. Go and do something important. That's what you people do, isn't it? Don't come here faking concern unless you bring a very good brandy. Ah, too late. I've already opened the day's batting. If you don't want some, you may dab it on my brow for medicinal purposes. Tom hangs up the telephone and dials his mobile again. Yes, hello. Thank goodness. Listen, my name's Tom. Sir Tom Seymour, actually. You seem to have my phone. Oh, right. You're the cabbie from last night. OK, look, I really need to get it back. I live at... Oh, of course you do. That's where you were taking me last night. Sorry, I don't remember. I'd had a couple of drinks. Yes, I'm OK. Just a bit of concussion. Nothing to worry about. Yes, fine. About three, then. Don't get lost. Tom sits at the typewriter and talks to himself as he starts typing. Don't get lost. A play by Sir Tom Seymour. Act One. It's a cold, wintry night in Norfolk, 1922. The snow is falling outside. The... the... ah... Tom repeatedly bangs the X key in frustration, then rips the paper out, screws it up and throws it in the basket. With his head in one hand, he reaches out with the other and puts it on the bust of George Bernard Shaw and reads the inscription on the small brass plate. Nobel Prize for Literature, 1925. Academy Award, 1938. Essayist, journalist, novelist and writer of over 60 plays. 
You never dried up, did you, George? I beseech you, galvanise me and give me inspiration. Tom closes his eyes and looks towards the ceiling. Nope. Nothing yet, George. Maybe tomorrow, eh? Tom takes a large gulp of brandy. No, Tony, if you're not bringing brandy, don't bring anything. I can't go out now. The cabbie from last night's got my phone. He's bringing it back. No, I wouldn't know him from a bar of soap. What? Our bet? Bloody right, I haven't forgotten. Thought you'd try to squirm out of it, though. Don't try and backpedal now. You shook hands on it. If you're going to Welsh, I will have you publicly dishonoured. I will rip off your metaphorical epaulettes. Come on. I may even manage to feign some pleasure in seeing you if you agree the bet is on. I've got everything you need in the house. Give me some relief from the tedium of existence. Get your driver to drop you off at the front. I'll buzz you in. I'm in the den. Tom tops up his brandy glass. I don't think you were expecting this. Tom moves a chess piece. Yes, that's right. It's the Chigorian counterattack. Back at you, sucker. What's that? Oh, you're right. That's not really match play language. I withdraw the sucker comment. It's open, Tony. Come on through. Tom tops up his brandy glass. You shouldn't be up. You should be taking it easy. You certainly shouldn't be doing that. Why did I answer that bloody phone to you? You're going to start lecturing me about abstinence. Don't even take your coat off. Your ugly beige coat, I might add. Why is it so many men after 60 have this inescapable attraction to all things beige? It's like the colour draining from your life, becoming so devoid of style. It may be the maturity that comes with age. My leather jacket days are behind me. You know, dressing your age... Nothing wrong with that. Acting your age. That can be attractive in men of your advanced years, too. Can I invite you to try it? What happened last night, anyway? Not sure. I'd been out. I was in a cab. Some sort of accident. Woke up in St. Thomas Hospital. When I heard the news, I rang the hospital. They just read the press release to me. Oh, you should have said who you were. I just said I was Tony, an old friend. I don't expect to be treated any different to anyone else ringing a hospital, asking about the welfare of a friend. I will never understand why you accepted that knighthood when you plainly have no intention of using it. What a waste. Someone deserving could have had it. I will say to you again what I've said to too many a punctilious interviewer. I do use it. I use it to show teenage oiks poised on the edge of oblivion, teetering on the edge of flushing their lives down the gaping toilet awaiting them, that people like them can make it. They're not necessarily preordained to have misery-filled lives ending in squalor in a squat off the Kildon High Road, wrapped in a body bag, with a dirty needle sticking out of their arm. Oh, so worthy. Did you tell that to Her Majesty as she laid the sword upon your shoulder? Do you think I should have? When she dubbed you, looking anxiously for a space without a chip on yours, did you tell her that you were chomping at the bit to use yours at every self-serving opportunity? For every restaurant reservation... For every time you'd answer the phone, did you tell her that it was the summit of your middle-class aspirations? Did you mention it? You'd use it as a weapon of superiority against the world, as you cocooned yourself from it. Is that what they're saying about me? No, the tragedy is they don't say anything about you anymore, other than the spit and spite you leave behind you. All you do is get smashed and leave a trail of destruction in your wake. Fall out of a cab insult someone who doesn't deserve it, 
or get photographed peeing on a London landmark, you are a tabloid editor's dream. At least the press this morning have treated you with fractionally more sympathy than usual. Tony reads from newspaper he's carrying. Sir Tom Seymour, 67. 66, actually. Sir Tom Seymour, 60-something. The former playwright and screenwriter, the one-time favourite of the West End and creator of the once hugely popular TV series The Man in the Black Bag, that started the careers of yours truly and later perennial British spy star Sir Roger Dawes, was involved in a road traffic accident last night. Sir Tom, who has become something of a recluse in recent years, was taken unconscious to Sir Thomas's hospital. A hospital spokesman said, The Sir Tom Seymour has sustained a head injury. That is not life-threatening. He is being kept in for observation. Nothing vindictive in that. Commendable fact-based reporting. You're denying me the wisdom of the comments page. Thank you. That rag never maligns when celebs have a near death in case they croak. They've learnt it elicits less sympathy to the editorial if they were disrespectful at the moment of death. Gives them a free run later. What they wanted to say was, Sir Tom Nobody, the washed-up has-been, the bane of everyone that now meets him, who once wrote with some success in the 80s and 90s, who has written nothing in five years and nothing anyone would pay money to see in the preceding ten, cracked his head in a London taxi because he was far too self-important to wear a seatbelt. And don't miss out the important titillation. When he was very drunk, Seymour survives on brandy and a cleverly negotiated merchandising deal from the man in the black bag. Then there's the obligatory picture of me, red-faced, dishevelled and sprawled on a receptive bit of London pavement. Why won't you just go to the old places that we can trust? With people that will look after you. Why can't you exercise a wincy bit more discretion? I've told you so many times that tabloid has got eyes everywhere. Everyone has a phone, and therefore everyone has a camera. I'm never going out again if I embarrass you. You really think that I'm that easily embarrassed? For goodness sake, I'm worried about you. We all are, including Roger. Oh yes, I bet he is, that piece of sh- He rang me last night when he heard about the accident. Double dyed, disloyal turncoat. I'll not have his name mentioned in my house. He always asks after you. He also said, Is he still sitting in that mausoleum, throwing pieces of paper with five words on them into his little basket? He says he's got a friend of his in the business who has done a talking cartoon of you from the press pictures. (laughs) Wasted some of his less than well-earned money. There's not an ounce of forgiveness in you. Remember, an ounce of forgiveness is worth a ton of revenge. You two were inseparable at one time. The best revenge is to be unlike him who performed the injury. Marcus Aurelius. You're going to give me some Shaw gem next, aren't you? Your prediction is as accurate as Shaw himself when he said, Silence is the most perfect expression of scorn, and I am being very silent. Besides, you can't forgive someone who isn't sorry. It's the base requirement for forgiveness. He blabbed to the press when I got my OBE. Have you forgotten what he said? I haven't. He said it as a joke. You'd only got your gong because you were a Labour Party donor. It was 1997. It was a long time ago. Haven't you ever said anything you regretted? Not to the press, I haven't. And not about my friends. What he actually said was, I got my OBE for my generous donations, so Tony Blair could be seen glad-handing Tom Seymour, who fancied himself as George Bernard Shaw. Minus the beard and the genuine beliefs, of course. He said, 
I was the worst sort of fashionable champagne socialist and I wasn't even a true socialist. He said I was in a business where I thought I was supposed to be a socialist. You're not a socialist, you joker. You're an Oxford-educated grammar school boy, the son of a doctor and a headmistress. For some reason, which I have never understood, you hate yourself for it. If they cut you open, it would say Tory all the way through your body like a stick of rock. Oh, how I value your incisive analysis of my political pedigree. What he said was essentially true. That's not the point. Then what is the point? He always said it was funny that you were so ashamed of your roots. You so wanted to have some working-class credentials. He said it to the papers. Let it go. What do you want him to do? Years ago, we'd have all drank too much and laughed at it. He's right. You've got to move on. You love the theatre, and you haven't been for, what, four years? Just come back to a little reality. Six years, all told. Why would I? Inspiration. I thought it was me who had inspired others. Pleasure, then. Do you think I would take from it the rhapsody of someone else's success, or remind myself of my own dismal failure? What happened to you, Tom? Life, darling. Life happened to me. You will all read my words, lived my characters, slimed the autograph, drank the champagne, rolled around with the women, took the cheques, signed the contracts and flew off to Hollywood. I stayed here. I stayed in reality. Don't talk to me about reality. I made you and him. I gave you the start and don't you forget it. Talk to me about bloody reality. I stayed here. You had plenty of come-ons. You had plenty of opportunities. I refused to work on the icon fixture unless you were offered the screenplay. You made the lacklustre film and the sequels. A procession of garbage trucks, each more capacious than the last. Yes, but only after you turned the screenplay down. I didn't turn it down. You sent Olivier a cowpat. He took it as a refusal. They wanted me to live over there and work in the studio, spewing interminable rewrites. That's the business, my old son. You could have done it in your sleep. I wasn't even going to be the only one. There was another two working on it already. They'd have made me share an office. Me! If I'd got up to have a slash, I'd have found someone else sitting in my chair. For some reason, I didn't look that attractive to me. It wasn't that. Here you were a big fish in a small pond. You didn't like looking over the big pond. Did I ever look like I wanted the crumbs from your Tinseltown table? Don't think so. They loved you, pretty boy Brit actors. You, with your sleepy English charm and your easygoing nature. They balked at the idea that you'd be followed by the ugly, immovable, inflexible, grizzled English writer that had put you there in the first place. They particularly didn't want one who wasn't begging on his knees for the Yankee dollar. Do you know, I think that makes you sound just a little bitter. Well, pardon me, why don't you? Don't worry about me. I want for nothing. I have property in London, Scotland, Norfolk and France. One step further than the royals, I like to think. You should spread yourself around. If you could learn to be consistently or even occasionally friendly, you could go and live in Norfolk. They'd be most accommodating. They can keep a secret in Norfolk. Oh, that's reassuring. Or France. They're very forgiving at the indiscretions of public figures there. Oh, no. I like it here. You're not dispatching me to the sticks. Or le sticks. You just won't help yourself, will you? If I disappear into the backwaters now... I will never be able to join A.J.P. Taylor, Frederick Engels, or my favourite old neighbour, William Butler Yeats. Join them? How would you join them? 
They're all brown bread. Dead as dodos, but all dead and recognised with the blue plaques in Primrose Hill, and I want mine. But you'll be dead too. A price I am prepared to pay. Oh, you're exasperating. I also have a splendid array of clever investments on my portfolio from an accountant that advises a rather big Irish rock band. And soon, ducky, I will add ten pounds of your money to my healthy stack. <laughs> Unless you're losing your Hollywood softened bottle. The bet. Yes, I'll bet. The cab driver. Yes, the cab driver. All right. If you really want to go through with this, he fits the bill. Someone not known to either of us coming here, to your home, no previous contact. Precisely. How can I be certain you didn't get to him last night? Well, I suppose you can't be certain, other than the fact that he picked me up in Piccadilly somewhere, I think. The only thing I'd have said to him was my dress, and the assurance that I never speak to cab drivers unless I'm insulting them. They speak to me, like they waffle onto everyone. Uber cabs killing this trade, blah, blah, blah. We'll be sorry when there's no black cabs in London, blah, blah, blah. Immigrants, yada, yada, yada. Nigel Farage, blah, blah, blah. And I'm screaming inside, shut up. Some of the older ones are better. The ones that remember you in the show, perhaps? Funnily enough. The ones that bought all the black bad merchandise. The ones whose parents lined your pocket. Now they seem to be acceptable members of the species. Yeah, I bet it's the other way around then. I bet it's them screaming inside. They empty me out of their cabs. They charge me whatever, and I pay five pounds extra for the privilege of being well-known and rude. Anyway, it was your idea to do this with a cab driver, not mine. What I meant was a cab driver would fit the criteria. You've got a head injury. I wasn't proposing we do this now. It's you that constantly churns out those tiresome platitudes. Strike while the iron's hot. No time like the present. Never put off till tomorrow. The early bird catches the... Okay, okay, okay. So what time is he coming? Didn't set a time. Sometime about three. What is it? About five, two now? Hmm, where's the harm? I hope he's got a sense of humour. Remember, don't let it go too far. I mean it, Seymour. It's just a bit of fun, ducky. What could possibly go wrong? Just a little parlour game. Give him something to tell his grandchildren. If we're doing this, then, I'll be listening at the door to make sure you don't cheat. This is a lot of effort for a ten-pound note. My agent would have apoplexy if he knew. Oh, then I will post him the one pound fifty he'd want. That bloodsucker has done plenty well from your labours. Was never quite sure why you needed an agent, as you never turn anything down. You could have replaced your agent with an answer phone. Perhaps, if you'd been fractionally more charming, you would have some prospect of recognising your agent's voice when he rang. It is a he, isn't it? Do you remember if your agent is male or female? In fact, he or she could have retired five years ago, and you wouldn't even know. Ah, oh, touché. If you're hell-bent that this happens now, let's get this done. Then you are buying me dinner. I want my head down in the Dorchester by ten o'clock. I'm being taken to the airport at six a.m. I've got vacation work in Berlin tomorrow. I reckon that's him now, as the pre-pubescent nano-weight obliviously steps into the ring with the rippling 18-stone heavyweight world champion. The crowd of one forlornly realises he has kissed goodbye to his misplaced gamble. Later, as I, the victor, revel over the vanquished, like the prevailing gladiator, I will be licking the blood from the sword. I will enjoy it as I discard the trivial bounty. Seconds out, round one, lamb to the slaughter, candy from a kid. Remember, no money can be offered in any way, or that is a blatant cheat. Words only. I know the rules. I made them. Get off my set. You rang. Hello. Is Tom Seymour there, please? This is the residence of Sir Tom Seymour. 
It is he you are addressing. Uh, sorry, uh, Sir Tom. Uh, it's Lou, the cab driver. He spoke on the phone. Dear boy, I'll press the buzzer, push the big oak door, walk down the side of the house. I'm in my den. It's the old stable building. I'll let you in. Tom takes a large gulp of brandy. Welcome aboard. Come in. Let me shake your hand. It's so kind of you to get you back to me. It's nice to meet you, Sir Tom. Oh, Tom's fine. You have acknowledged my title once. You are not a waiter or my employee. You have crossed the threshold and you're in my home. And doing me a great service. Just Tom from now will suffice. I'm a bit early. I knew you'd be glad to get it back. It's like losing a limb, isn't it? I know it's a frightful apothegm, but we really are lost without them, aren't we? Je suis perdu sans elle. Uh, sorry? Our phones, dear boy. Our cells, our mobiles, our trumpets. What you would call our dog and bones. Yeah, here it is. I didn't find it till you rang. I was just crossing the Edgware Road. It was under the seat in the back of the cab. Only come on an hour ago. I should check the cab when I finish, but I never do. There's some missed calls on it. How's your head? Oh, mild concussion, my old darling. Nothing serious. I'll survive. Don't worry about it. Now, I must refresh your road-weary bones. A drink, mon ami. Oh, I should be going. Uh, I've got to make up a bit for last night. But I insist. I have a Bergeret Cognac 1865. I stole it for £4,000 a bottle. An Ochtentosh in whiskey or a special claret? And it's Napoleonic. I'm sure you'd enjoy a glass of that. We can toast Waterloo and cock a snook at the Gauls. Wasted on me, Tom. I couldn't tell the bottle of Bloom None from whatever that is. I've got to go. I'm driving. No, no, no. Don't be so ungracious. You must allow me, the grateful recipient of your kindness, to show some appreciation. It's good manners, Lou. A coffee, then. You must have a warm, relaxing beverage. Wash the road dust from your throat. I shouldn't. But you shall. Come on. You need to tell me how I managed to sustain this head injury while I was in your vehicular care. It weren't my fault. I'm sure it wasn't, my dear fellow. Now I want all the detail. A quick coffee, then. Good man. I have some bubbling in my little kitchen. Milk? Sugar? If it's no trouble. It's the least I can do. And if I have a choice, the least is what I invariably choose. Tom leaves the room. Lou looks around the room at photos and props. Make yourself at home. Do you mind if I, like, look around? Oh, browse away. You go right ahead. I know you're all honest, honourable people, you licensed cabmen. Can't believe it, really. Believe what? I'm in your house. You used to be a famous writer, didn't you? Do you mind? That's the very past tense. I'm still a writer now, thank you. Sorry. Didn't mean to offend. Just we don't hear much about you these days. They still repeat lots of your stuff on TV. It's still watchable. Why, thank you. I'm sure there's a compliment in there somewhere, even if it was delivered from Wimbledon. Sorry, uh... Backhanded. I wrote a lot of plays, won a few awards before your time, I dare say. That there was my crowning glory. That's my Edgar. Every spring, the mystery writers of America present them for work in the genre. It's widely acknowledged as being the most prodigious. I got it in 1988. For hide behind the curtain. That's a long time ago. Oh, they don't go off. That looks nasty. That, my observant young friend, is the actual knife from In Cold Blood. Ran from September 1977 for 1,281 performances. They had to replace the spring three times. Cheap, simple, but effective. They are the genuine gloves from Strangled. That had a good run, too. 
They've been round the necks of a few household names. We didn't know much about plays and theatre, where I come from. I'm sure you spent your time doing something more robust, learning more practical skills. I bet you were good at woodwork. I'll hazard your old granny's most treasured possessions with a sewing box fashioned by you. Am I wrong? Not really. I I mean, that weren't the reason. Theatre and that was a bit, you know. A bit what? Will. Ponzi. Ponzi? Well, maybe you're right. Do you know I've dedicated 40 years of my precious life to being Ponzi? I wonder if they all came to that stark realisation at some crossroads in their lives. Oh. The immortal bard, J.B. Priestley, Anthony Schaefer to name but a few. So many others who empty their inkwells, biros, ribbons being Ponzi. I don't really know what you're talking about. I'm a teasing of you. You pay me no attention. I'm fully engaged in my delicious chosen pastime, which is amusing myself. But hold on, I'm being very indolent in my duties. I bet you're hungry. You know, I strongly suspect that ferrying the ungrateful travelling public about that gold-plated street of London has made you ravenous. No, I'm fine, mate, honestly. I had something before I come on. No, no, no. I have some delicacies for your taste buds. There is no more sincere love than the love of food. But a moment. Tom disappears into the kitchen again. I should be off now. You still haven't told me anything about my calamitous accident. How I woke up on a lumpy bed being offered an insipid cup of NHS tea by an astonishingly toothy nurse. Tom returns with a plate of food. My solicitor is an inordinately expensive, but for my money I get a snarling legal rottweiler. Vindictive, litigious, accusing and extremely thorough. No legal stone is left unturned. No person with the slightest involvement in anything to my detriment is left unblamed or unflayed in every conceivable and, for that matter, inconceivable way. I am always so glad he's in my corner and not my opponents, as they are lawfully peeled from the impenetrable British judicial system. To be honest with you, he's not really a very nice man at all. I think I like him not just for his overzealous professionalism, but because he makes me look like Sir Francis of Assisi. I told him that and he laughs. He thinks I'm joking. I'm not. Sit down. Why don't you try one of these? That's a good chap. Do you know, I don't say what people like in this stuff. And these quail eggs. Overrated, if you ask me. Oh, you've had them before? Yeah, of course. Waitrose knock this stuff out all the time. All right. Try that. That stuff there, aside with the plate. What is it? Taste it, and I'll tell you. Go on. Live dangerously. Hmm. What is it? Kobe beef. Japanese delicacy. Had that before? No, never. Never ever heard of it. Excellent. I'm going to have a stiff brandy. You finish your coffee and tell me what happened last night. Lou stands up and walks towards the wall where the props are hanging. You owe me in Piccadilly. These guns on the wall. Are they real? That's a prop. That's a prop. That's a prop. But that's real. A Mark I Webley service revolver. Shouldn't have it, really. Got some real shells and a silencer in that drawer. Mum's the word. Where's the harm? You got a licence? Uh, well, not exactly. That's against the law. Laws, my friend, are for the guidance of wise men and the strict adherence of fools. You're wrong, though. It's a Mark Six. What is? Webley. I'm done for. Tell me you're not a part-time cab driver and a full-time gun nut. No, it says there on the side of the gun. Ah, well spotted. As you can see, I keep many of the props from my early plays. They were my glory days. Why did you stop writing all that old stuff? All that old stuff? All that very popular old stuff, I'll have you know. 
You impudent, insolent, impertinent young devil. Anyway, I didn't stop writing. I simply went out of fashion. People's tastes change like they do with clothes and music. They wanted the profound, the profane and the profligate. Not me, ducky. There was a time in all the West End theatres fought to get me. In the end, I couldn't fill a phone box on a rainy night. It didn't work, you see. People kept coming for a few years, out of curiosity, rather than for the creative experience. The critics weren't kind. Quel surprise. What a day now. Ah, so true and so percipient, my trenchant friend. I was experimenting in styles, and the critics said it shouldn't be done. They said it couldn't be done. And do you know what I said? No. What do you say? I'm glad you asked. To them I quoted the master. Those who say it cannot be done should not interrupt those who are doing it. Who said that? That's good. GBS. Geo? George Bernard Shaw. Who's he when he's at home? Oh, never mind, dear boy, never mind. Listen, would you sign an autograph for me? I know you probably won't. Oh, now why would you say that? Well... Go on then, there's a dear chap. You're amongst friends. It's what you read in the papers. They say you're a bit, well, funny with people. Whether or not there's any truth in that absurd slur on my character, you're in my home and I won't be funny with you. Lou takes bulky pad from his jacket pocket and hands it to Tom. <laughs> That's substantial. I'm a London cab driver. You never know who you're going to get. Then I'm flattered to be joining some illustrious names, I'm sure. Tom speaks the words as he writes. Lou, my hero, may all your fares tip handsomely and your headlights never dim. Love, Sir Tom Seymour. Ta. They do say one good term deserves another. Oh, yeah? Quid pro quo? Quid what? Oh, never mind. Would you help me with something now? Of course. Where do you want to go? Oh, not that sort of help, mein Herr. Uh, you see this suit I'm wearing? It's actually a costume, really. It's, it's connected with a plot I'm developing. I need to see what it would look like on stage, so to speak. Uh, would you mind terribly? You want me to put your clothes on? Here? Now? Yes, now. No point in making an appointment to come back, is there? It's for a new play I'm writing. Oh, don't look so worried. So, you want me to take my clothes off? Well, you can't put the suit on without taking your clothes off, can you? Oh, you precious boy. Not all your clothes, of course. Sorry, no, I'm not, you know. No, 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 neither am I. Look, I just need to see what it looks like, that's all. It's an artistically visual component of the plot. No, I don't think so. Look, I will take my suit off and put this robe on. I will step out of the room if you're shy. All you have to do is to hang your garb on the back of this chair and put the suit on. You'll be back in your own manly street clothes in a trice. Trust me. I'm not doing no funny business. Understand that? I have an enforced ban on the funny business. I will hang it here. Pop it on. I am going out of the room while you disrobe. Just think, this very suit may be adorning these walls one day, like a two-piece tapestry. Tom leaves the room. Lou looks around him and hurriedly puts the suit on. Are you decent? Yeah, you can come in now. Ah, perfect, perfect. You're doing me a great favour. We were exchanging Christmas cards this year and every year. Am I? Oh, more than you will ever know. Give me a twirl. Can I change back now? Oh, not just yet. Relax for a moment. I'm gathering some creative literary thoughts. Tom pours himself a brandy. Am I becoming a part of your plot? Oh, yes, you so are, dear boy. I've never done nothing like this before. It's fun, really, isn't it? I imagine you haven't, Lou. How about this? If I have a, a gun or a knife, yeah? That's the spirit. Enjoy yourself and imagine you're on stage.
Lou takes the knife from the wall. He makes a gesture with his hand as if pushing back a shower curtain and makes the repeated stabbing movement with the knife whilst mimicking the staccato music from the scene in Psycho. That's it. You performed that very well. Ah, you're a natural. You have to take it up professionally. Well, I wouldn't give up the day job. Yes, you're really filling in the gaps now, dear boy. Am I? Great. Lou takes the gloves from the wall and puts them on and takes the Webley from the wall and points it at Tom. I'm gonna kill you. No, come on. Be less direct, more imaginative. Put some feeling into it. I'm not messing. The next one that messes with me... You looking at me, punk? That's it, excellent. You're entering into the spirit of it. Do you know that one of Janet Lee's body doubles was actually murdered accidentally by a gun like that? What now, then? Do you want me to say a few lines of yours? No, no, you've done more than enough. Your work here is done. That's all you wanted? Just me to put the suit on? Yes, that's it. Uh, can I get changed back now, then? Yes, sure. Just leave the suit on the back of the chair. Tom? Are you there? It's Tony. Oh, hi, Tony. Thanks for dropping by. Do come in. Have I really helped today? Uh, help what? Well, you know, with whatever it is you're writing. When I put the suit on and that. Oh, yes. Great help, Lou. I'm going to tell my mates. Yes, make sure you do. This don't happen every day. I'm sure it doesn't. I'd very much hope you hadn't been credited for your assistance to other dramatists. I'd be jealous if I hadn't had your sole attention. Sorry? Don't concern yourself. I'm preoccupied with my own amusement once again. What is it you're writing? Oh, uh... Is it TV or play stage? Oh, I mean, stage play. It's a play. What's it going to be called? Never been to the theatre, but I'll go and see this as I've had something to do with it. Only in a small way, I know. Well, it couldn't have been done without you. What's it going to be called? I'll look out for it. Mm, I'm not sure. Maybe the wager. The small wager. Well, I'll look out for small wager and try and spot the suit. The suit? Yeah, you know, the suit. Oh, yes, of course. Lou, this is my old friend Tony. Lou looks at Tony and does a double take. You're... you're Tony Randolph. Oh, my. Sir Tony Randolph, if you don't mind. I can't believe it. I've seen all your films. Don't be a swooning devotee. I can't stand it. I will vomit. Tom pours a large brandy. I can't believe you've seen all his films. I can't believe you've been on the planet long enough. Tom pours another brandy and swallows it. He waves bottle at Lou, who holds up his hand in the negative. No to my brandy again. Brandy from brandy wine. From the Dutch. Brandevine. Burned wine. Bet you'd have a pint with Tony, though, wouldn't you? I reckon you'd have fine time for that, wouldn't you? Guess what? I had a pint with Tony Randolph. Yeah, the big actor. He's a proper nice bloke. He is salt of the earth. Oh, ignore him, Lou. Yes, ignore me, Lou. A taste for fine things says something I feel. More refined tastes shows breeding. Tom pours another brandy. Good manners show good breeding. Oh, look, it's my own home in which I'm expressing my own opinions. Could it be he doesn't like brandy? He doesn't like me. Do you both drink from the same glass? Or do you pour out two? Who? You two, Mrs. Jekyll and Hyde. You were as nice as pie when you were playing. Now, listen to yourself. It's that ghastly stuff. It's the finest. It's not the quality, it's the quantity and the effect. Now, even your Dr. Jekyll has a personality disorder. Oh, you're too kind. Now, will you be the perfect host to your guest here, Seymour? You know, I have no idea how I get by without you here telling me what to do and how to behave. Neither do I. Look at us. 
We found agreement on something. Perhaps you could leave me a copy of Tony Raldorf's Book of Manners and Behaviours for the immensely popular. I could make it my life study. It could be my mantra, my new gentleman's code. I'll have a copy sent over. It's been published in all the major languages of the world. Anywhere they like a bit of common decency. It's in Mandarin now. Over one billion speakers. The Chinese are very big on respect. I think you could learn from them. Tom picks up the knife that Lou was using and puts it back on the wall. He then picks up the gun and waves it at Tony, holding brandy in one hand and the gun in the other. I don't know where you've found the time to write it when you go from one worthless project to another. Barely enough time to change your underwear. Stop waving that gun at me, you drunken old fart. Oh, my sweet, sweet God, what have I done? Oh, Jesus, what's happened? Tom drops the gun and rushes to the body and starts checking for a pulse. He sobs and rocks backwards and picks up the gun again. It was an accident. I'm calling the police. No, 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 wait. I, I need to think what to do. I, I need to think what to say. Uh, I know, I know, look. There was a knock on the door. It was a stranger. Uh, a stranger wearing a mask. He had a gun. He pushed his way in. Uh, Tony challenged him and the intruder shot him. That's what happened. That's what we'll say. Uh, you'll say that, won't you, Lou? Just tell them what happened. I can't tell them Tony Randolph was killed in my house by an unlicensed firearm with unlicensed ammunition, by an illegal gun that was being held by me. They'll send me to prison and throw away the key. You can't think I deserve to go to prison, do you, Lou? Oh, no, I, I don't think you deserve to go to prison. But you do see that's what will happen if I tell the truth. If, if we tell the truth, you must see that. Well, OK, yeah, I see that. Oh, look, if you don't want to lie, j just pretend you weren't here. You left before it happened. You want me to lie and say I weren't here when you shot him? Accidentally shot him. No, I, I mean when he was accidentally shot. It's an old gun. It went off accidentally. Oh, please, Lou, I beg of you. I wouldn't last a day in prison. You want me to just go? I'll let you out the back. You, you climb over the fence. It's all wooded down there. No one will see you. Just walk round the block and get in your cab and go. I'll take care of all this here. He won't have all that aggravation of having to make a statement. Where's the harm? If I just go, you could call the police and tell them I did it. You'll show them how I legged it over the back fence. Then it would just be your word against mine. That wouldn't get me anywhere. Tom starts waving the gun around again. Or you could shoot me too while I climb over the fence. What you got to lose now? That was your friend you just shot. It was an accident. How many more times? All right, it was an accident. Now you're just thinking of saving your own skin. You're right, Lou. It is self-preservation. Tony's gone and I'm sorry. But do I have to die as well? And I surely would die in Pentonville. I'm not a murderer. All right. You, you didn't mean to do it. You're in shock. It was an accident. I'll go like you said. I'll just slide out the back and over the fence and I'm gone. If the police interview me, I'll just say I left before any of this happened. But you should call an ambulance. There's no point. He's dead. The police, then. Someone. We can't just stand here. Someone could have heard the shot and called the police. It'll look better in the long run if you called them yourself, told them yourself. What choice have you got? You've got to call them. If you don't, I will. Oh, wait, wait. Just, just give me five more minutes to what? think about this. Wait for what? What difference will five minutes make? This is crazy. I only came back here to give you back your phone. What difference will five minutes make? I shouldn't be caught up in this. What are we waiting for? Talk to me. Look, you're in shock. You need help. 
You're not thinking straight. What harm can five more minutes make? There's a dead international film star over there. Why wait any longer? Won't bring him back to life, will it? Dear God, what are we going to do? Are you sure he's not breathing? With that, Tony gets up. Game over. I win. He didn't stop me. He just wanted to check I was dead. You jumped up too quick. I could have recovered that. I could have distracted him, put his attention elsewhere. You are so totally desperate not to lose. Well, you're not a good winner. You are only slightly less insufferable when you do. In which case, then, I shall be slightly less insufferable today, will I not? Which I sadly will have to endure, because you did not win. He spotted you breathing. You spotted him breathing, hadn't you, Lou? The charade was over. What's going on? Tony wipes the fake blood splatter from his coat and the floor, totally ignoring Lou. You broke the rules very early. Oh, did I? How was that? The rules were, you had to get him to wear your clothes and then to persuade him to drink something he'd never drunk before. And persuade him I did. And what did he have? He declined my fine and rare brandies and whiskies and settled for the persuasions of a hot beverage. Nothing wrong with that. Totally within the game rules. What sort of coffee was it, Tom? It was parchment coffee. Very expensive, very exclusive. Elaborate. Very well. It's called monkey parchment coffee. The rhesus monkey on the plantations in India are very picky eaters. They only choose the sweetest, ripest berries. They're smart enough to spit the seeds out. Did you tell our friend Lou that? Of course. No, you didn't. I'm sure I would have. You didn't tell him in case he asked you what it was. Nonsense. You know if you told him he wouldn't drink it. Not many people would. Did he tell you your hot beverage was parchment coffee, Lou? Nah, he didn't. What's going on? Monkey parchment's coffee, Lou. It's coffee that's been through the digestive system of monkeys. It's supposed to be the pinnacle of coffee for coffee buffs. He was meant to get you to drink something you'd never had. But he had to tell you what it was... And he didn't. He just let you think you were drinking gold blend. He cheated. You lose Tom. I thought you were lying dead. I dispute this. I'm sure I told him. I would have told him. I did tell him. If he'd told you it was coffee that a monkey had chewed, would you have drunk it, Lou? I thought he'd shot you. I thought you were dead. Forget it. Let's have a drink. I think we all deserve one now. I am the winner of the bet. That was a bet. You put me through that for a bet. Sorry, Lou. Tom and I were out a few weeks ago. He said all my early success stemmed from the words he wrote for me. He said actors would be just so many empty vessels without playwrights or screenwriters finding something for them to say. I said you couldn't have one without the other. I said, without an actor, what you do is just assemble... 26 letters of the alphabet on pieces of pulped tree. That's not exactly what I said. That's the gist of it. I said it it was the combination of the crafted word and the crafted character portrayed by the actor. When we were clattered in the Ritz, he bet me, by just using clever words, that he could get a complete stranger to eat something he'd never eaten, drink something he'd never drunk, and even take off his clothes and wear the clothes he was wearing, all with the power of his persuasive words. He said he would get someone to do that in 20 minutes, so we agreed a £10 bet. I then said in that case, if he made it a £20 bet, I could fake your death and persuade the victim of the game not to call the police and give the account I suggested to him. Lou, me old mate, we were both very drunk, silly old fools who should know better. I'd hoped he'd forget about it. Well, he didn't forget about it, did he? Unfortunately, no, he didn't. I did say to him, if you're determined to do this, 
not to let it go too far. I thought faking my death was too much. Certainly too much for a stranger. Someone not in our world. And you made me the victim of this. It was just a bit of fun. Sorry you see yourself as the victim, amigo. Whilst all this is going on, Lou starts to change back into Tom's suit. Neither Tom nor Tony pay any attention. You said victim. Victim was the word you used. Persuade the victim of our game, you said. Oh, wrong choice of words. The freedom of speech, ducky. Oh no, I think you chose the right words, victim. You couldn't give a toss about people. Just playthings. Irrelevances. Real people, I mean. What they wrote about you in the papers is true. Look, I'm sorry, Lou. Have a drink. Here, you feel better. A drop of fine brandy. Calm your nerves. Cool your heels. He's right, Tom. It did go too far. Be that as it may, it's done now. Sir Anthony Randolph, actor. You lost, and I will be pleased to accept 20 of your finest English pounds. The inconvenient truth, Sir Tom Seymour, scribbler, is that you did not adhere to the rules. Your own rules of engagement, I might add. Meanwhile, Lou takes the gloves from the wall and puts them on, then picks up the Webley. Tom and Tony pay no attention to what Lou says as he repeats the words Tom said earlier. There's a box of real shells in that drawer. Mum's the word. Lou takes out shells and opens the revolver, places one bullet carefully in the gun. How are we going to settle this then? Honourably. And you will be gracious in your loss. I've even got a silencer. Lou takes the silencer out of the drawer and attaches it to the gun. Where's the arm? We should have an independent inquiry at the club. Come on, we'll buy Lou's dinner. Oh, no, not with your preloaded bunch of cronies. Are you suggesting I would nobble a jury? You impugn my character, Randolph. Lou takes the clown mask from the wall and puts it on. Tell him, Lou. Tell him he's not getting away with it. Why are you putting that Coco the Clown mask on, Lou? Neither of you are getting away with it. Lou raises the gun and points it at Tony and pulls the trigger. There is the muffled sound of a silenced shot. Tony rocks back with the impact and blood appears on his white shirt. He falls to the floor. Oh, sweet Jesus, what have you done? Come on. I'd say that was obvious. I've shot him. Look. Point blank in the chest. Lou bends down over Tony's body. Yep. Pupils are dilating and pulse is weak. That level of damage to the heart, it's a massive drop in blood pressure very quickly. His brain is still running for a few more seconds. If there's something you want to tell him, I should shout now. Did you know, back in the French Revolution, when they were slicing heads off all the posh people with that guillotine of theirs... They discovered something curious. In 1798, a woman called Charlotte Corday was fed to the guillotine. She'd murdered Jean-Paul Marat, a radical journalist and a much-admired revolutionary. After her head fell nicely off, the executioner picked up her head from the basket and slapped her face. She opened her eyes and gave him a look of utter disgust and indignation. Oh dear, too late. They're completely dilated now, Tom. I'd say he's gone. You, you've killed Tony. You've really killed him. Tom moves towards Lou. Lou points the gun at Tom. Ah, ah, ah. You've just murdered Tony Randolph. Whoops. You evil, nasty bastard. Ah, ah, ah. Remember who's holding the gun? They're quite heavy, these service revolvers, aren't they? Call an ambulance. Won't help, will it? 
The Great British Ambulance Service, sympathetic, hard-working, highly trained, dedicated, but not one miracle worker amongst them. You evil sick! Not so funny now the boot's on the other foot, is it? Where's all the just a bit of fun? Don't worry, old chap. Brandy's on me. You callous, cold-blooded... Didn't matter when you were playing with my emotions, did it? That was just playing. Nobody got hurt. You've just murdered someone. A real person. We were just playing a game. Was that a nice game to play? Answer me. What world would you have to be in to make that a nice little game? Lou takes the suit off and puts his own back on. Please, I beg you, call an ambulance. Let's all go back to the beginning. Take that silly smoking jacket off, or whatever it is. Put your clothes back on. Lou waves the gun at Tom. Tom takes off his robe and puts the suit back on. I can't believe this. It's a horror film. Because I humiliated you in some way, you've killed him. Just like that. You know, it looks that way, don't it? Look at you. You're getting angry now. I think you're becoming a little unpredictable. Can't believe you've killed him for this. Are you going to kill me now? Now, why on earth would I want to do that? Why on earth would you want to kill Tony? But I didn't kill him. Yes, you did. I just watched you do it. I am a witness. You're in shock. You'll say anything. Don't worry. The police will recognise that. They'll go through the process. You'll be seen by a police doctor. You'll get defended, honestly. They'll want psychologist's report. All part of the procedure. This is Britain. Defendants first, victims later in these cases. What are you talking about? You're not making sense. In these cases? What cases? Oh, you know. Manslaughter. How is that manslaughter? You shot him dead on purpose. You even put that old silencer on. That's not an accident, is it? You say that at the moment. I think you need to consider your position, Ducky. You see, really, my old fruit, I didn't kill him. You did. What? You are mad. They'll never believe you. Won't they? Is that because I'm a two-bob cab driver and you're a knight of the realm? Oh, they'll see the evidence. Will they now, Tom? Let's have a look at the evidence, shall we? Internationally famous actor found shot dead in home of once famous writer. Oh, yeah. You found at the scene of the crime with a gun. Oh, yes, uh, your gun, Tom. Your unlicensed, unregistered firearm, to be precise, Tom. With your fingerprints all over it. I'll tell them you fired the gun. That they can tell that, you know. Damn it. You're talking about forensic firearms residue, aren't you? Yes, that's it. You have obviously been watching that latest police forensic officer series on TV. Oh, no, I'm finished. No, stop. Hold on. What will they find when they start swabbing and testing in their laboratories? Of course, if they do their job properly. They'll swab both your hands and mine. Now, let's think. Where will they find residue of a discharged firearm? Not on my hands. I was wearing gloves. Whose gloves? Oh yeah, your gloves. When they look at your hand swabs, what will they find, Tom? They're going to find rather a lot on yours. Let's think some more, shall we? If those cops really do a proper job, like they normally do, particularly in a high-profile case like this is going to be, they're going to seize all our clothes, 
We'll be given some sparkling white paper suits to wear, I expect. How exciting. You like dressing up, don't you? Those forensic officers are going to look so carefully. What are they going to find, eh, Thomas? They'll find plenty on the clothes of the person that fired the gun. They'll find it all over your suit. Oh, look. It's the suit you're wearing now. Nothing on my clothes. Then they'll swab your hair and nose. Surprise, surprise. They're going to find it there too. My samples, thanks to Coco here, nothing. Zilch, nada. They'll tell that you fired the shot that killed Tony because the one I fired was a blank. For a clever bloke, you're not really all that sharp on detail, are you, ducky? What do you mean? I'll spell it out for you. Now concentrate, I'll say this only once. If you've been listening, what you've got is a Mark VI Webley, which got fine-tuned for World War I. And what you've got in the drawer there is Mark I ammunition. So you are a gun nut. So what? No, I'm not. I just know a bit about guns and ammunition. I'm sure they'll search my flat. Nothing suspicious there. Not even a box of matches. You, on the other hand... Oh, you poor dear. You look so confused. I'll give you a quick lesson. The difference between Mark I ammunition and later versions is that the good old Mark I used black powder, good old-fashioned gunpowder, to discharge the shell. Cheap but smoky, inefficient, old-fashioned. They realised this for World War I, when they needed to kill more people more quickly. They adopted cordite. Very different residue. Now, question. Do you know what they use in blanks? No? Well, I'll tell you. Gunpowder, my old mate. Exactly the same stuff as your old live ammunition. You see, while you and dead Tony here were having your little argy-bargy, I put one bullet in the same chamber you fired your blank. Those high-foreheaded boffins simply can't tell that a blank and a live cartridge were fired from that gun. Naughty, aren't I? They'll find the empty blank cartridge. Well, they will find it eventually. Lou throws the spent cartridge out of the French window and into the pond. They'll find it in that pond where you've chucked so many others over the years when you were drunk. Discharging blanks in here, annoying your neighbours who stopped calling the police years ago because of the volitions of their dipso-erratic, playwriting, once-famous, inconsiderate neighbour. They won't believe you. Au contraire, Thomas. I think they will. Your neighbour, the grey-haired lady with the cat. Uh, Jenny. Yeah, Jenny. The police will knock on her door, doing their laborious house-to-house inquiries. And what will she say? How do you know she's even in? I saw her when I was pulling up out the front cuddling one cat and feeding another. What do you think she'll say? Enlighten me, do. She'll say, I heard one shot, officer, about four o'clock. Are you sure it was one shot, madam? Oh, yes, quite sure. I didn't call you because I hear them quite a lot. He's that old writer. He does them for his work, I think. Thank you, madam. Just sign here. She'll say, I'm so shocked, officer. He seemed like such a nice man. What she's really thinking is that unpleasant, inconsiderate drunk, always rude to carol singers and charity collectors, 
I hope they lock him up forever. I hope the house is on the market soon and I get the nice neighbours that I deserve. Dear God, why have you done this? Whoops, look at me. I nearly forgot, getting all carried away. I still have a fly in the ointment at the moment. Why, why, why? Lou unscrews the silencer from the gun. The pros like to use the word suppressor. They don't like silencer. Call it what you like, does the same thing. Massively reduces the amount of noise and flash emitted on the discharge of a firearm. Very clever. It had been around for a surprisingly long time. Modern ones don't need a lot of cleaning. Old ones, like this one, do though. Do you know how the pros clean them? Has the cat got your tongue, Tom? Well, I'll tell you. They use vinegar with hydrogen peroxide. Lou pours a large glass of brandy. Do you know what else you can use that's equally effective? No, of course you don't. Alcohol. Especially top quality eye-proof stuff. Stuff like this, in fact. Lou places the silencer into the glass, takes it out and puts a lighter under it. And so we flambe the unwanted evidence. Lou takes the brandy, opens the grate and throws it on the fire. And that deals with that little fly in the ointment. I still don't understand why you're doing this. Tony was a good man. Everyone knows I loved him. Everyone knows I wouldn't hurt one hair of his head. Not intentionally, granted. But don't forget, they'll convict you of manslaughter, not murder. He was my best friend. He weren't just your best friend, Tom. He was your only friend, really. Don't suppose that makes you feel better, does it? I'm sorry. You're sick. You really should plead guilty, you know. That's what your natalie dress brief will say. He'll drag it out for a bit, obviously. That's where they make their money, as they bound something down like jack-in-the-boxes with my learned friend this and your honour that. You've got to let he or she have their day. We don't want to see a QC on value-baked beans, do we? You can afford it. You've done all this? Killed Tony and framed me? Simply because we played a silly little game. Do you think that's likely? Is that what happens in one of your ridiculous half-baked plots? You're stark staring mad. Who knows what you do or why? When all this happened, and it looked like he'd been shot, I didn't know what was going on. You know, for a while I even felt sorry for you. <laughs> Can you believe that? Then, when I saw Tony was alive, and I woke up, I actually realised you were just playing me. Like I was nothing. Like I was just an actor in your play. You were actually using me for that bet I'd heard you spinning in the back of the cab. And you were just giving me it all on a plate. Telling me, like the arrogant sod you are, you've got a real gun, ammunition, a silencer. Unbelievable. You've done this for vengeance? It was at first. But now I'm doing it for the money. How are you going to make money out of murder? I think you may be dimmer than you look. Look at it. Innocent, honest cab driver goes to home of reclusive, hard-drinking, illegal gun-owning, erratic writer with the intention of returning said writer's phone. Cab driver, humiliated in games playing, shortly before writer shoots accidentally dear friend and internationally famous Hollywood film star Sir Anthony Randolph, Seymour had to be restrained by the hero cab driver after a struggle. Oh yeah, we should have a struggle. What struggle? Lou knocks off books from shelves and kicks over the chess table. Tell me, 
Which paper won't want the exclusive on this story? That's 100,000 quid easy. They'll be fighting over me. Well, you're awaiting trial. I'll have to wait until you're convicted, of course. They'll be even more interested in it by then. I can wait. So it's nothing but dirty money? Yes, it's the money. I'm going to call the police now. Lou picks up the phone and dials. Police? Lou covers the mouthpiece. Are you still going to tell them I did it? You'll just look ridiculous. Yeah, my name's Lou Green. I'm a cab driver. I'm at the home of Tom Seymour. Uh, Sir Tom Seymour, the writer. Sorry, I'm a bit shaken up. He shot a film star bloke. Yeah, it's 16 Digby Road, Primrose Hill. Please hurry. Please get an ambulance too. Hurry, please. You won't get away with it. I already have. If I were you, don't say anything until you get your clever brief to write your slick confession for you. Please, I don't want to go to prison. I'm no angel, but I don't deserve this. When they take you down the steps after your short trial, what will you have learnt from all this? I don't know. Maybe I'm not a good guy. I drink too much. I'm rude to waiters, barmen, cab drivers, everybody. I'm a bitter, world-hating old man. But do I deserve this? Do I? You can tell the police all that now. How much you wish you'd been a nicer person. I'm sure they'll write it all down in their little notebooks and take it all into account in your conviction. I'm being framed. It started with a bet. Oh, just a silly bet. But you're framing me for murder. You're right. I won't say anything to the police until I've spoken to my barrister. Barrister, eh? No expense spared. I want the best representation. I'm sure you do, chummy. I'd say you're going to need it. Shooting dead a much-admired, much-adored knight of British actor, beloved of the Hollywood film industry and darling of British theatre, patron of the arts and many other worthy charities to boot. And with that eulogy, Tony gets up. This is game, set and match, my son. What is this? I think I'll have that drink now. I'm gasping. You pair of complete and utter No, no, don't be a bad loser. Don't add that to your long list of offences. But you, my old son, will be wanting an explanation. I'm still shaking. Look at my hands. I saw him shoot you and you went down there. You haven't moved. I will tell you the how. Then I will tell you the why. And finally, I will tell you the who. I'm sweating. Look at me. I'm sweating, shaking. My heart is pounding. What the hell were you trying to achieve? Patience, Seymour. I'm explaining the how. I heard last night about your involvement in that accident. I rang your mobile, naturally. Of course, you were Sparko on your hospital bed, but your phone was answered by the cab driver. He saw my name on the phone and heard my voice. On the promise of a selfie and an autograph for his mum, I met him at the hospital, and he gave me your phone. Lou gave you my phone? No, not him. I'll get to the who in a minute. But why? Isn't it time for the why instalment? The why? Yes. Last month, when we'd been out, and you made that bet, and you were talking about it in the cab, the dressing up, the food, the drink, which was just a bit of messing about, but you were talking about faking a death. Not just that, but doing it in front of a complete stranger. That was crossing the line. You can't do that to someone. But I knew you couldn't resist it, once your bizarre, imaginative mind had thought it. So you had set yourself on going too far. The papers would have made mincemeat out of you. You'd be in the deepest brown stuff to date. I knew I couldn't stop you, 
I had to engineer the circumstances to bring something out of the ma you wanted to make for yourself. So here we are. I hope you'll understand. How thoughtful. Who is he? Well, the who. Well, to pull this off, to get this right, I needed the services of an actor. I had to consult with the best on how to do this. I definitely needed an accomplished actor, a convincing actor. I knew you would never remember who was driving the cab that night, or indeed any night for that matter. I capitalized on that. Oh, how clever you are. Praise from Caesar. So my actor friend here, Marlon, agreed at very short notice to help me out. He was sitting next to me when you rang him earlier about getting your phone back to you. I'd already said I was popping in. You moaned like a drain, like you always do, and I prompted you to call the phone again. Now we were ready for you. After a couple of minutes, you did. Then I called you again for some spurious reason. You told me how you had to wait for the cab driver who was bringing your phone back. I pointed out that he would fit the bill for our bet. I knew you wouldn't be able to resist that, and you didn't let me down. But it was my engineered cab driver that came knocking. You're an actor? Yes, yes, I am. Marlon, you were brilliant. Would you mind waiting outside a minute whilst I have a word with Tom? Tom, we all want you to get your finger off the self-destruct button. I'm touched by your concern. So all this, in some way, was for my perceived redemption? Is that disgusting to you? Is it? People that actually care should show, make an effort, and do it in a world or in a way that you may see it for what it is. Do we just give up? What you bury yourself? We didn't. We tried. Show me some other people that would. You never used to be like this, for Christ's sake. We want you back. We watch you rock from one disaster to another. You can't treat people the way you do, Tom. We worry for you. You changed what you were writing. You need to go back to what you were writing at the beginning. Why, oh why, would I ever want to do that? For old time's sake? No, not for old time's sake. I just think it's a great idea. Okay, but why now? Look at the obits, you idiot. Just look at the obits. So you want me to write? Yes. Everyone wants you to write. I'm never going to write anything profound or profane. Oh, profligate, yes, I know. Did anyone ever ask you to? Why not try one of those twisting thrillers of yours? Audiences loved them. Tell you what, how about Marlon playing a deranged cab driver? You've seen what he can do. He's played the part for you. Surely you could make something out of that. I hate being morbid. I told you to look at the obituaries. You'll see someone we know there every week. Don't waste any more time. We will all be dead soon. Too soon. We're going now, Tom, but before I go, I'll take these. Tony gets a bag. He puts the gun, the shells, and the silencer in the bag as he speaks. I'm off to the police station. I have to make a report. What are you going to say? Officer, I was walking in a park near Primrose Hill. I saw this bag, I saw what was inside, and I thought the safest place to take it was here. No, officer, I didn't see anyone with it at all. I'm sure you'll know how to dispose of these nasty old things. It's always worried me, you having this stuff here. Not anymore. It's all going. Depriving me of some excitement, are you? Don't miss this opportunity. Tony sees a night chess piece on the floor. He bends down and picks it up and puts it on the desk next to the typewriter. It's time you stopped being a pawn in the game of life. Tony leaves. That's not a pawn. It's a knight, you buffoon. So, they want some sort of twisting thriller again. That's not passé now. I can put a star in it, can I? A new star from old stock. Hmm. Tom sits at the desk, 
and types as he speaks. Our story takes place on a Saturday afternoon in December 2016. It is the converted stable building at the back of a large detached Victorian house in Primrose Hill. It is the den of a once noted, indeed knighted, writer of plays and TVs, who sits at his desk. Ah, stop. Wait, come on, Tom. Stick to the rules. All good stuff starts with a title. Tom picks up the chess piece from the desk and taps it on his chin. Title, title, title. Yes, of course. Theatrical Nights. End of Theatrical Nights by Ben Henderson. Adapted for audio theatre by Edward Kirkby. The characters were played by... Sir Thomas Seymour, David Hall. Sir Tony Randolph, Michael Berman. Lou the cab driver, a.k.a. Marlon, Terry Offila. With narration by Edward Kirkby. This is an audio theatre production. For more information or to volunteer, please visit audiotheatre.uk.